Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Volume 6 of Rip Foster Writes the Grey Planet. Chapter 11. Hard Words for O'Brien. The Scorpius could have taken direct hits with little or no major damage from a hundred rockets of the kind Rip had used, but Commander O'Brien took no chances. When the alarm bell signaled that the outer hull had been hit, the commander acted instantly with a bellowed order. The planeteers on the asteroid blinked with the speed of the cruiser's getaway. Fire flamed from the stern tubes for an instant, and there was nothing but a fading glow where the Scorpius had been. Rip had a mental image of everything movable in the ship, crashing against bulkheads with terrific acceleration. And at that same moment, the Consop's cruiser reacted. The conning commander was ready to fire guided missiles when his target suddenly, mysteriously blasted into space at optimum acceleration. There was only one reason the Connie could imagine. His cruiser had been spotted. The ambush had failed. It was one thing for the Connie to lie in ambush for a single deadly surprise and blast at a Federation cruiser. It was quite another to face the nuclear drive ship with its missile ports cleared for action. The Connie knew he had lost. Rip and the Planeteers saw the Consop's ship suddenly flame away, then turn and dive for low space, below the asteroid belt in a direction opposite the one the Scorpius had taken. The helmet communicators rang with their cheers. The young officer clapped Santos on the shoulder and exclaimed weakly, Good shooting. The corporal turned anxiously to Koa. Lieutenant's pretty weak. Can't we do something? Forget it, Rip said. There was nothing anyone could do. He was trapped inside his spacesuit. There was nothing anybody could do for his wound until he got into air. Koa untied his safety line and moved to Rip's side. Sir, this is dangerous, but there's just as much danger without. I'm going to tie off that arm. Rip knew what Koa meant. He stood quietly as the big sergeant put the line around his arm above the wound, then put his massive strength into the task of pulling the line taut. The heavy fabric of the suit was stiff, and the air pressure gave further resistance that had to be overcome. Rip let most of the air out of the suit, then fought for breath until the pain in his arm told him that Koa had succeeded. He inflated the suit again and thanked the sergeant weakly. The tight line stopped the bleeding, but it also cut off air circulation. Without air, the heating system couldn't operate efficiently. It was only a matter of time before his arm froze. Stand easy, Rip told his men. Nothing to do now but wait. The Scorpius will be back. He set an example by leaning against the thorium crystal in which the cave was located. It was a natural but meaningless gesture. With no gravity pulling at them, they could remain standing indefinitely, sleeping upright. Rip closed his eyes and relaxed. The pain in his arm was now less, and he knew the cold was setting in. He was getting lightheaded, and most of all he wanted to sleep. Well, why not? He slumped a little inside the suit. He awoke with Koa shaking him violently. Rip stood upright and shook his head to clear his vision. What is it? Sir, the Scorpius has returned. Rip blinked as he stared out into space to where Koa was pointing. He had trouble focusing his eyes at first. Then he saw the glow of the cruiser. Good. They'll send a landing boat first thing. I hope so, Koa replied. Rip wanted to ask why the big planeteer doubted, but he was too tired to phrase the question. He contented himself with watching the cruiser. In a short time, the Scorpius, 
was balanced with nose tubes counteracting the thrust of stern tubes, ready to flash into space again at a second's notice. Rip watched puzzled. The cruiser was miles away. Why didn't it come any closer? Then suddenly it erupted in a dozen fiery streaks. Snopper bolts! Somebody gasped. Rip jerked fully awake. In the ruddy glow of the fighting rocket's tubes, he had seen that the cruiser's missile ports were yawning wide, ready to spew forth deadly nuclear charges. The snapper boats flashed away toward the asteroid in a group, sheared off and then broke formation. They came back in pairs, streaking space with sparks of their exhaust. Into the cave, Koa shouted. The planeteers obeyed instantly. Koa took Rip's arm to lead him inside, but the young officer shook him off. No, Koa, I'll take my chances out here. I want to see what they're up to. Great Cosmos, sir. They'll go over this rock like Martian beetles. You'll get it for sure. Get inside, Rip ordered. He gathered strength enough to make his voice firm. I'm staying here until I figure out some way to call them off. We can't just stand here and let them blast us. They're our own men. Then I'm staying too, Koa stated flatly. A pair of snapper boats flashed overhead and vanished below the horizon. Two more swept past from another direction. Rip watched curiously. What were they up to? Another pair quartered past them at high speed, then two more. The dozen boats seemed to be crisscrossing the asteroid in a definite pattern, but why? A pair streaked past and something sped downward from one of them, trailing yellow flame. It exploded in a ball of molten fire that licked across the asteroid in waves. Rip tensed, and then saw the chemical would burn out long before it reached them. Firebomb, Cohen muttered. Rip nodded. He had recognized it. The planeteers were trained in the use of firebombs, tanks of chemicals that burned even in an airless world. They were equipped with simple jets to use in space. The snapper boats drew off back toward the Scorpius. Rip watched, searching for some reason for their actions. Then one of the boats pulled away from the others. It returned to the asteroid with stern jets burning fitfully. Is he landing? Koa asked. Rip didn't know. The snapper boat was moving slowly enough to make a landing. Directly over the asteroid, it changed direction, circled, and returned over their heads. Rip could almost have picked it off with a pistol shot. Santos could have blasted it into space dust with one rocket. The snapper boat changed direction, and for a fraction of a second, stern and side tubes fought against each other, making the boat yaw wildly. Then it straightened out onto a new course. Koa exclaimed, That's a drone! Rip got it then. A pilotless snapper boat. That's why his actions were a little uneven. Only one thing could explain his deliberate slowness. It was bait. The Scorpius had sent piloted snapper boats over the asteroid at high speed, crisscrossing in order to cover the thorium world completely, expecting to have the unknown rocketeer fire at them. Then a firebomb had been dropped as a further means of getting the asteroid to fire, but no rockets had been fired from the asteroid, so the pilots in control of the drone had sent it in at low speed, a perfect target. That meant O'Brien wasn't sure of what was going on. He must have seen the blip on his screen as the Connie cruiser flamed away. But the commander probably suspected that the Connies had overcome the planeteers and were in control of the asteroid. He had sent the snapper boats to try and draw fire in an attempt to find out more surely whether planeteers or Connies had the thorium rock. The Scorpius doesn't know what's going on, Rip told his planeteers. O'Brien doesn't know the cruiser was waiting to ambush him. 
so the rocket we fired made him think the Connies had taken us over. He put himself in O'Brien's place. What would his next step be? The snapper boats hadn't drawn fire, even when a drone was sent over at low speed. The next thing would be to send a piloted boat over slowly enough to take a look. Rip hoped O'Brien would hurry. There was no longer any feeling in his arm below Koa's safety line. That meant the arm was frozen. He had to get medical attention from the Scorpius pretty soon. He gritted his teeth. Well, at least he wasn't losing blood any longer, and he wasn't getting any weaker. But every now and then his vision fogged, and he had to shake his head to clear it. The pilot in the snapper boat made another slow run, then put on speed and flashed back to the group of boats near the cruiser. Another boat detached itself from the squadron and moved toward the asteroid. Rip wished for a communicator powerful enough to reach the Scorpius, but knew it was useless to try with his helmet circuit. The carrier waves of the snapper boats were on the same frequency, and they would smother the faint signal from his bubble. But the boats might be able to hear if they got close enough. He had a swift memory of the communication circuits. The pilots were plugged into their boat communicators. If a boat got near enough, he could turn up his bubble to full volume and yell. Not only would the boat pilot hear him, but his voice would go through the pilot's circuit, and it would be heard on the ship. Rip grabbed Koa's arm. Let's move away from the cave a little farther. The two of them stepped away from the cave and stood in full view as the snapper boat moved cautiously down toward the asteroid. Rip planned what he would say. Commander O'Brien, this is Foster. No, that wouldn't do. The Connies would know that Kevin O'Brien commanded the Scorpius, and if they had taken over the Planeteers on the asteroid, they would also have learned Rip's name. He had to say something would identify him beyond doubt. The snapper boat was closing in slowly. Rip knew the pilot and gunner must be tense, frightened, ready to blast with their guns at the first wrong move on the asteroid. He groped with his good arm and turned up his helmet communicator to full volume. The fighting rocket drew closer, cut in its nose tube, and hovered only a few hundred feet above the planeteers. Rip summoned enough strength to make his voice sharp and clear. His words sped through space, into the bubble of the pilot, echoed in the helmet and were picked up by the pilot's microphone, then hurled through the snapper boat's circuit through space to the control room of the cruiser. O'Brien stiffened as the speaker threw Rip's voice at him, amplified and hollow-sounding from the reverberations in the boat pilot's helmets. O'Brien is so ugly, he won't look at his face in a clean blast tube. That no-good Irishman wouldn't know what to do with an asteroid if he had one. The commander turned purple with rage. He bellowed, Four-star! A junior space officer hit a grin and murmured, uh, Looks like the planeteers still have the asteroid. O'Brien bent over the communicator and yelled, Deputy Commander, launch landing boats. Get those planeteers and bring them here. Under armed guard, ram it. The snapper boat pilot, through whose circuit Rip had yelled, turned to look wide-eyed at his gunner. Did you hear that? Throw a light down there on the asteroid. It must have come from there. The gunner threw a switch, and a searchlight port opened in the boat's belly. Its beam searched downward and swept past. It steadied on two space-clad figures. It worked, Rip said tiredly. He closed his eyes to guard them against the brilliant glare, then waved his good arm. Santos called from the cave entrance. Sir, landing boats are being launched. Bring out the prisoners, Rip ordered. Line them up. Planeteers fallen behind them. The landing boats 
with snapper boats and watchful attendants, blasted down to the surface of the asteroid. Spacemen jumped out, awkward at first, on the no-weight surface. An officer glided to meet Rip, and he had a pistol in his hand. It's all right, Rip told him. The Connies are our prisoners. You won't need guns. The spaceman snapped. You're on a risk. Rip stared incredulously. What for? Commander's orders. Don't give me no arguments. Just get aboard. I can't argue with a loaded gun, Rip said wearily. He called to his men. We're under arrest, boys. Don't know why. Don't try to resist. Do as the spacemen order. Rip got aboard the nearest landing boat, his head spinning. O'Brien had made a mistake of some kind. The landing boats, loaded with planeteers and connies, lifted from the asteroid to the cruiser. They slid smoothly into the airlocks and settled. The massive locked doors slid closed, and lights flickered on. Rip waited, trying to keep consciousness from slipping away. The lock gauges registered normal air, and the inner valve slid open. Commander O'Brien stepped through, his square jaw outthrust, his face flushed with anger, and he bellowed, "'Where's Foster?' His voice was so loud, Rip heard him faintly, even through the bubble. He stepped out of the landing boat and faced the irate commander. O'Brien ordered, Get him out of that suit! Two spacemen jumped forward. One twisted, Rip's bubble free and lifted it off. The heavy air of the ship hit him with a physical force. O'Brien grated. You're under arrest, Foster, for firing on the Scorpius, for insubordination, and for conduct unbecoming an officer. Get out of that suit and get flaming. It's the brig for you. Rip had to grin. He couldn't help it. He started to reply, but the heavy air of the cruiser, so much richer and denser than that of the suits, was too much. He slumped unconscious. There was no gravity to pull him to the floor, but the action of his relaxing muscles swung him slowly until he lay face down in the air a few feet above the floor. Commander O'Brien stared for a moment, then he took the unconscious planeteer and swung him upright. His quick eyes took in the patch on the arm, the safety line tied tightly, and he roared, Quick! Get him to the wound ward! Rip came back to consciousness on the operating table. The wound in his arm had been neatly repaired, and below the wound, where his arm had been frozen, a plastic temperature bag was slowly bringing the cold flesh back to normal. On the other side, a pulsing pressure pump forced new blood from the ship's supplies into his veins. A senior officer with the golden lancet of the medical service on his blue tunic bent over him. How do you feel? Rip's voice surprised him. It was as full and strong as ever. I feel great. Can I get up? When we get enough blood into you and your arm is fully restored. Commander O'Brien appeared in the doorframe. Can he talk? Yep, he's fine, sir. O'Brien glared down at Rip. Can you give me a good reason why I shouldn't have you treated for space madness, then toss you in the brig until we reach Earth? Best reason in the galaxy, Rip said cheerfully. But before we talk about it, I want to know how my men are. One got cut, and another had his bubble crack. Also, one of the Connies got badly cut. Another had some broken bones, and a third one bled into high vac when Koa cracked his bubble. The doctor answered Rip's question. Your men are all right. We put the one with the cracked bubble into high compression for a while just to relieve his pain a little. The other one didn't bleed much. He's back in the squadron room right now. Two of the prisoners are patched up, but the third one is in the other operating room. I don't know whether we'll be able to save him or not. We're trying. 
O'Brien nodded. Thank you, Doctor. Now, Foster, start talking. You fired on the ship, scored a hit, broke the air seal. No casualties, fortunately. But by forcing us to accelerate at optimum speed, you caused so much breakage of the ship's stores that we'll have to put into Marsport for new stocks. And on top of all that, you insulted me within the hearing of every man on the ship. I don't mind being insulted by planeteers. I'm used to it. But when it's done over the ship's communication system, it's bad for discipline. Rip tried to keep a straight face. He said mildly, Sir, I'm surprised you even give me a chance to explain. I wouldn't have, O'Brien said frankly. I would have shot off a special message to Earth, relieving you of command and asking for the discipline board action. But when I saw those Connie prisoners, I knew there was more to this than just a young space pup going vac-wacky. There was, Commander. Rip recited the events of the past few hours while the Irishman listened with growing amazement. He finished with, I had to convince you in a hurry that we still held the asteroid, so I used some insulting phrases that would let you know who was talking without any doubt at all. And you did know, didn't you, sir? O'Brien flushed. For long moments, his glance locked with Rip's, and then he roared with laughter. Rip grinned his relief. My apologies, sir. Accepted? O'Brien chuckled. I'm sorry I won't have an excuse for dumping you in the brig, Foster. Your explanation is acceptable, but I have a suspicion that you enjoyed calling me those names. I might have, Rip admitted, but I wasn't in very good shape. It was the only way I could think of getting into air so I could have my arm treated. Commander, we moved the asteroid. Now we have to correct course, and we have to get some new equipment, including nuclear shielding. Also, sir, I'd appreciate it if you'd let my men clean up and eat. They haven't been in air since we left the cruiser. For answer, O'Brien strode to the operating room communicator. Get it, he called. The deputy commander will prepare landing boat one and issue new spacesuits and helmets for all planeteers with damaged equipment. Put in two rolls of nuclide. Sergeant Major Koa will see that all planeteers have an opportunity to clean up and eat immediately. The planeteers will return to the asteroid in one hour. Rip asked, Will I be able to go into space by then? The doctor replied. Your arm will be normal in about 20 minutes. It'll ache like the dickens, but you'll have full use of it. We'll bring you back to the ship in about 24 hours for another look at it, just to be sure. Sixty minutes later, clean, fed, and contented, the planeteers were again on the Thorium planet, while the Scorpius, riding the same orbit, stood by a few miles out in space. The asteroid and the great cruiser arced high above the belt of tiny worlds in the orbit Rip had set, traveling together toward distant Mars. Chapter 12. Mercury Transit The long hours passed and only Rip's chronometer told him when the end of the day was reached. The planeteers alternately worked on the surface and rested in the air of the landing boat compartment while the asteroid sped steadily on its way. When a series of sightings over several days gave Rip enough exact data to work on, he recalculated the orbit and found the amount that the course had to be corrected. And then he supervised the cutting of new and smaller holes in the metal. Tubes of ordinary rocket fuel were placed in these and fired. The thrust moved the asteroid slightly, just enough to make the corrections Rip needed. It was not necessary to take to the landing boat for these blasts. The planeteers retired to their cave, which was now lined with nuclide as a protection against radiation. Rip watched his dosimeter climb steadily as the radiation dosage mounted, and then he took the landing boat to the Scorpius. 
talked the problem over with the ship's medical department and arranged for his men to take injections that would keep them from coming down with radiation sickness. They left the asteroid belt far behind and passed within 10,000 miles of Mars. The Scorpius sent its entire complement of snapper boats to the asteroid for protection in case Consops made another try, then flamed off to Marsport to put in new supplies to replace those damaged when Rip had forced sudden and disastrous acceleration. The asteroid had reached Earth's orbit before the cruiser returned. Of course, the Earth was on the other side of the sun. Rip ordered a survey and found the best place on the dark side to make a new base. The planeteers cut out a cave with the torch, lined it with nuclite, and moved in their supplies. It would be their permanent base until the end of the trip. The sun was very hot now. On the sunny side of the asteroid, the temperature had soared far past the boiling point of water. But on the dark side, Rip measured temperatures close to absolute zero. When the Scorpius returned, he arranged with Commander O'Brien for the planeteers to take turns, going to the cruiser for showers and decent meals. The asteroid approached the orbit of Venus, but the bright planet was some distance away, at its greatest elongation to the east of the sun. Mercury, however, loomed larger and larger. They would pass close to the hot planet. O'Brien recalled Rip to the Scorpius and handed him a message. Asteroid now within protection reach of Mercury and Terra bases. Your escort no longer required. Proceed immediately to Titan. Take on cargo and personnel. The commander sighed. Looks like I'll never get to Earth long enough to see my family. Rip sympathized. That's tough, sir. Maybe the cargo from Titan will be scheduled for Terra. That's what I'm hoping, O'Brien agreed. Well, here's to where we part. Is there anything you need? Rip made a mental check on supplies. He had more than enough. The only thing we need is a long-range communicator, sir. If you're leaving, then we have no way to contact planet bases. I'll see that you get one. The Irishman thrust out his hand. Stay out of high vac, Foster. Too bad you didn't join us instead of the planeteers. I might have made a decent officer out of you. Rip grinned. That's a real compliment, sir. I might return it by saying I'd be glad to have you as a planeteer corporal at any time. O'Brien chuckled. All right, let's declare a truce, Planeteer. We'll meet again. Space isn't very big. A short time later, Rip stood in front of the asteroid base and watched the great cruiser drive into space. A short distance away, a snapper boat was lashed to the landing boat. O'Brien had insisted on leaving it with a word of warning. These Connies are plenty smart. I didn't like leaving you unprotected, even when reach of Mercury and Terra. But orders are orders. Keep the snapper boat. You'll at least be able to put up a fight if you bump into trouble. The asteroid sped on its lonely way for two days, and then a cruiser came out of space, its nuclear drive glowing. The planeteers manned the rocket launcher, and Rip and Santos stood by the snapper boat, just in case. But the cruiser was the Sagittarius, out of Mercury. Captain Go Sien Tech, a Chinese planetary officer, arrived in one of the cruiser's landing boats, accompanied by three enlisted planeteers. They were all from the Special Orders Squadron on Mercury. Captain Go greeted Rip and his men, then handed over a plastic stylus plate ordering Rip to deliver six cubic meters of thorium for use on Mercury. While Koa supervised the cutting of the block, Rip and the captain chatted. The Mercurian planeteer base was in the twilight zone, but the planeteers did all their work on the sun side, using special alloy suits to mine the precious nuclide that only the hot planet provided.
At some time during its early formation, Mercury had been so close to the Sun that its temperature was driven high enough to permit a subatomic thermonuclear reaction. The reaction had shorn some elements of their electrons and left a thin coating of material composed almost entirely of neutrons. The nuclide was incredibly dense. It could be handled only in low gravity because of its weight, but nothing else provided the shielding against radiation and meteors half so well, and it was in great demand for spaceship skins. Things aren't so bad, Go told Rip. The base is comfortable and we only work two-hour shifts out of each ten. We've had a plague of silly dillies recently. They got into one man's suit while we were working, but mostly they're just a nuisance. Rip had heard of the creatures. They were like Earth armadillos, except that they were silicon animals, and not carbon like those of Earth. They were drawn to oxygen like iron to a magnet, and their diamond-hard tongues, used for drilling rock in order to get to the minerals on which they lived, could drive right through a spacesuit. Or, if they could work undetected for a short while, they could drill through the shell of a space station. Scrolobus primus was the scientific name of the creature, but the fact that it looked like a silicon armadillo had given it the popular name of Silly Dilly. Apart from its desire for oxygen, it was harmless. Koa reported, Sir, the block of thorium is ready. We've hung it on a line behind the landing boat. The blast won't hurt it. It's too big to get inside the boat. Great, Koa. Well, Captain, that does it. The Mercurian planeteers got into their craft and blasted off, trailing the block of thorium in their exhaust. Rip watched the cruiser take the craft and thorium aboard, then drive toward Mercury, brilliant sunlight reflecting from its sleek sides. The planet was only a short distance away by spaceship. It was the largest thing in space, except for the sun itself, as seen from the asteroid. To Rip, it looked about three times the size of the moon, as seen from Earth. Past the orbit of Mercury, the sun side of the asteroid grew dangerously hot for men in spacesuits. Rip and the planeteers stayed in the bitter cold of the dark side, which ceased to be entirely dark. Even the temperature rose somewhat. They were close enough to the sun so that the prominences grew flaming tongues of hydrogen that sped many thousands of miles into space and gave them light and enough heat to register on Rip's instruments. Mercury was left far behind and Earth could not be seen because of the sun. There was nothing to do now but ride out the rest of the trip as comfortably as possible until it was time to throw the asteroid into an ever-tightening series of elliptical orbits around the Earth, known as breaking ellipses. The method would use Earth's gravity to slow them down to the proper speed. A single atomic bomb and a half-dozen tubes of rocket fuel remained. Then, as Rip was enjoying the comfort of air during his off-watch hour in the boat compartment, Koa beat an alarm on the door. Rip and the planeteers with him hurriedly got into spacesuits and opened up. It's Terrorbase, calling on the communicator, sir, Koa reported. Urgent message. They said they want to talk to you personally. Rip hurried to the base cave. The communicator indicator light was glowing red. He plugged in his helmet circuit and said, This is Lieutenant Foster. Go ahead. A voice crackled across space from Earth. This is Terrorbase, Foster. A Consops cruiser has apparently been hiding behind the sun waiting for you. Our screens just picked it up. We've sent orders to the Sagittarius on Mercury to give cover for you, and the Aquila has taken off from here. But get this, Foster. The Consops cruiser will reach you first. You've got about an hour. Do you understand that? Rip understood all right. He understood too well. 
Gotcha, he said shortly. Now what? The communicator buzzed. Take any appropriate action. You're on your own. And Foster, sorry. Sending the cruisers is all we can do. We'll stand by for word from you. If you think of any way we can help, just let us know. Rip asked, How long before the cruisers arrive? You're too close to us for them to move fast. They'll have to use time accelerating and decelerating. The Sagittarius should arrive in something less than two hours, and the Aquila a few minutes later. The communicator paused and then continued. One more thing, Foster. The Connies know how badly we want that asteroid, and they also know we don't want it enough to start a war. Got it? Got it, Rip stated dryly. I got it good. Thanks for the warning, Terra Base. Foster off. Terra Base out. Stay out of high back. Fine advice if it could be taken. Rip stared up at the brilliant stars, thinking fast. The Connie would have almost an hour's lead on the Space Patrol cruisers. In that hour, if the Connie were willing to pay the price and blasted snapper boats, Consops would have the asteroid, and Terra Base had made it clear that the Space Patrol would not try to blast the Connie cruiser and take back the asteroid, because that would mean a war. Added together, the facts said just one thing. They had one hour in which to think of some way to hold off the Connies for an additional hour. The planeteers clustered around him. Rip asked grimly, Any of you ever study the ancient art of magic? The planeteers remained silent and tense. Magic is what we need, Rip told them. We have to make this whole asteroid disappear, or else we have to conjure up a space cruiser out of the thorium. Otherwise, we have a little more than an hour before... We're either prisoners or dead.